0: let's um let's look real quick um at the question of what does god ask of us how many of you guys have ever had anybody ask you that question what does god ask of us anybody ever ask you that what does god ask of you so i'm gonna turn that on your head on its head a little bit and i want to go ahead and put the punchline up front the answer is not much he doesn't ask much of you did you know that because God is a king. He's a king. Hebrews four twelve and 13 says, For the word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We live in a time of soft vocabulary. Our words are soft, so they don't break hearts or bend moods toward sadness or anger. And in the process, I wonder if we haven't worked to blunt the double-edged sword of the word so that it cannot divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow. We often prefer that the word of God not judge our thoughts or the attitudes of our heart we speak of a god who loves us which is true is our friend which is not wrong and we use words like ask and invite in describing god's interactions with us but god's primary role is his kingship his primary role is his kingship i've heard a lot about god over the course of um, of my life i've studied a lot um, I've read a lot of commentaries, I've heard a lot of sermons, a lot of lessons, I've done a lot myself, but it wasn't until preparing for this that I heard that God's primary role out of all the descriptors of who he is, is that of a king. I've heard him as king of kings and lord of lords, listed among a litany of other descriptors of who he is. But one of the challenges that we face, one of the challenges that I have faced, and I'm sure to some extent it's similar with you, is that we don't live in a monarchy. We wonder what a big deal is with the royal family in England. We wonder how it is that people respond to somebody who is a king from birth, a king by nature just because ...of who they are rather than what they've accomplished. We've seen them step down from positions of authority... ...and just recently we saw that a prince was removed. All of his titles were removed from him. And I think it's interesting that the way the British press put it out... ...the way that the office of the queen put it out... ...was not that he has been stripped of his titles... ...but that his titles and his positions have been returned to the queen... They've been returned to the queen. They are hers to divvy up and hers to pass out as necessary and to take back as necessary. Jason Hood says, contemporary approaches to this deity are vastly removed from the Bible's reigning paradigms. He says the wordplay is intended there. For the God who inhabits its pages. Even the conceptions of God held by most Christians are often disconnected from the imperial nature of the metaphors, and concepts applied to God in the Bible. We desire relationship, not hierarchy. We feel the need for affirmation and love, not authority and lordship. We pick and choose our metaphors and theological truths so that they offer us a more comfortable God. How comfortable are you with God? Over the more than three decades of me being involved in student ministry, I think yesterday was the most distressing that I've seen in a long time. Our youth went to the Youth Evangelism Conference which was great. It was over in Virginia Beach and it was great. We had a great time. The preaching was excellent. The worship was excellent. Everything about it was it was a great conference. The word of God was preached. The Lord was worshiped, He was glorified. There was nothing doctrinally unsound about anything that was spoken or taught or preached until the time came for a prayer. A youth pastor was asked to pray, and he did. And then later on, the beginning of the next session, another youth, asked, youth pastor was asked to pray, and he did. There were probably 1,000, 1,500 people there, maybe, I don't know, I don't know, it was, the place was basically full, and about a third of the boys that were there had their ball caps on, and so did the youth pastors, some of the youth pastors that were there, which is fine. I'm bald. In case you hadn't noticed that, I'm here to speak truth to you this morning. And, um, so I understand, you know. But the distressing part to me, and you may think this is silly, or it's ridiculous, or it's goofy, or it's a minor point, but I think it speaks to a greater point, is that the two youth pastors, two of the three youth pastors that prayed, stood up to pray and left their hats on as they led in prayer. Now, some of you who are younger may say, okay, whatever. But it speaks to the concept of who we're approaching. Who are we approaching? When you go to the Lord in prayer, who are you approaching? Maybe you've heard that when you go to pray, you are approaching the throne of grace. You're coming into the presence of the king of all kings, the king of the universe, the king of glory. And does it matter if you have your hat on? No. From one standpoint, no, it doesn't. It's not like it's going to block the prayer. But there used to be a time, even when men would take their hat off, just to walk into a building. And that is something that is trained generation to generation. I'm glad that when we do men's prayer breakfast. And um, about half the time, half the men wear their hats when they come in. They may not take, we may not take them off when we enter their building, but we, everybody takes them off when they pray. And nobody tells them to. It's just what they know to do. And it sounds like it is really ridiculous, and I'm making a bigger deal about it. But if, they were st- if we stand before an actual on-earth person of royalty, that's an act that we would take. And yet, when we were approaching the king of kings, even something as minor is removed. It's not something that we consider. It's not something you think about. But it's important for us to understand that God is the king. But he's not just the king. He's the king. God is the king. There are many places that we could find God's identity as king throughout scripture. But we're actually going to focus initially on God's confirmation of his, or Jesus' confirmation of his identity as king. Psalm 47 says this. If you have your Bible, if you'll open up to Psalm 47. He says, Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. How awesome is the Lord Most High, the great king over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord, amid the sounding of trumpets, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to Him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on His holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people Of the God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. He is greatly exalted. You've heard that he is high and lifted up. I did not, even though I knew that God is the king, and even though I knew that he had been taught as the king, I had never been taught that that is his primary role of all the descriptors of who he is in scripture. And I think, from what I understand, the primary reason for that is because that was what people understood. Not just because he's the king, not, but because they lived in a time where every nation had a king. If you remember, at one point, at least one point, the nation of Israel said, we want a king. And their rationale was, everybody else has one. And God's response was, I'm your king. And they said, no, we want a real king. We want a king that we can see. And God's response is, oh, you mean a king who's going to take your kids and send them off to war? And he's going to take your daughters from their household and enslave them as his own servants. That's the kind of king you want. I'll give you that. If that's what you want, I will give you that. And they took a shortcut and asked for a king that was more like them because God is not like us. That's what holy means. Holy means separate. Another way to put that is he is incorruptible. Can I tell you that the only people who want a corruptible judge are the guilty? The only people who want a corruptible judge are the guilty. Either they're bringing a case they have no business bringing or they are defending a case they have no business defending. Jesus speaks to himself as, as the king as well. And, um, and in one place, we've heard that he is, uh, it's a proclamation of his kingship, um, but it's very specific. John Piper um, wrote about this and, and, uh, and talked about the, the fulfillment of these prophecies and why it was so important. So in Matthew 21, 1 to 17, if you have that, if you'll switch to that So we turn over to that. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to your daughter, Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle gentle, and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna! in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind... And the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So Jesus confirmed his kingship by riding into town on a donkey. And you may wonder, why is that in the confirmation of his kingship? Because in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus' confirmation of his kingship by riding on a donkey was not because he rode on a donkey but because it had been prophesied by inspiration from himself about himself that he was going to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. So when he identified himself as a king, because he was riding on a donkey, it was pointing back to the people that were there, including to the religious leaders, that he's the king that they've been waiting for. Because the prophecy from himself, about himself, to the people that were going to be present the day he arrived, in hopes that they would recognize that is a confirmation of his kingship. Your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He confirmed his kingship by cleansing the temple. In Isaiah 56, 6 through 8, said, Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and he will hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So just by riding into town on a donkey and cleansing the temple, the stories that we had heard before, he makes two proclamations of his kingship right then. As he wrote in, we we just read from Zechariah that he is the king from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Jesus admitted then at that point by fulfilling the prophecy that he was the king Not just of Israel, but the king of all kings. The king of everything. The whole world is his kingdom. And of course, we know that eternity is his kingdom as well. So just by riding in and and cleansing the temple, something we've heard and and we've read maybe dozens of times, that is a confirmation of Jesus' kingship. He also confirms his kingship by healing. Isaiah 35, 4-6 says, Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert.'" You may remember that John the Baptist was in prison and he sent word to Jesus asking if he was the Messiah. And Jesus replied by quoting some of this passage and he said, tell John that the lame are walking and the eyes of the blind are being opened. In other words, he was telling John when John said, are you the Messiah? Jesus said, yes, I am the Messiah. What John needed at that moment, being in prison, Not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing if he was going to get out, not knowing that his head was a gift, just that he had been imprisoned. He had spent his entire life looking for the Messiah. And then when Jesus came around the corner, came up over a rise, when John was out baptizing and preaching, he said, There he is! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when Jesus came to him and he said, I need to be baptized, John said, no, no, no. I should be baptizing, uh, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, this has to be done to fulfill all righteousness. John's whole life had been built up in looking for the Messiah, proclaiming that the Messiah was coming. And when he did, and when he saw it, and when he recognized it, he pointed all the glory and all the credit and all, everything to Jesus and off of himself. And then he was put in prison. And as I understand it, that gives you a lot of time to think, which is the purpose of prison. Remove you from society and let you think about what you've done. And you begin to wonder if he said, have I been wrong? Was he wondering, have I been wrong this whole time? So he sent word to Jesus and he said, Are you the Messiah? Are you the expected one? Are you the one that we've been waiting for, that the prophecy has been preaching about? And Jesus said, Tell him that the lame are walking and the eyes of the blind are being opened. And that was a soothing balm to John the Baptist in his final days. That, okay. I have seen the Messiah just as was promised. And everything I've said has been right. Jesus offered an affirmative answer to John's doubt by fulfilling the prophecies that had been written about him. And there are still more prophecies that are written, but not as Jesus coming the first time, but when he returns. Revelation 19, 16 says, On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus has always been the king. He has always been the king. He has always been the king. And he will always, 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 always be the king. As the pastor said, forever and ever and ever, and when all the forevers are done, then amen. William Tiptap said. If you had a thousand crowns, you should put them all on the head of Christ. And if you had a thousand tongues, they should all sing his praise, for he is worthy. Imagine that. If the song, For a Thousand Tongues to Sing, were all just you. So as a king, what does he do? First of all, the king decrees... A king decrees. A decree is a formal and authoritative order. It is through decree that the Lord orders the universe and foreordains events. He is not surprised. He is not blindsided. He doesn't wonder how things are going to play out. And all the stuff that we don't know and all the stuff that we don't see, he not only has seen it coming, but he um, makes it happen, allows it to happen, however that balance works out. That in our Um, our feeble little minds that we can't understand we can't grasp god has decreed these things to be so i think it's pretty cool i don't know if you guys have heard this or not but just this last week or so we finally saw for the first time live a star collapse into a supernova that's the coolest thing ever so far but how cool is that? They've known it happens and now they're watching on video. They're able to watch it on video by one of the telescopes um, that someone has, has been able to see. But here's the thing. There's so much farther beyond that. Anything we can see or imagine, the universe continues to expand and yet God says, I can fit the universe in the palm of my hand. That's my king. Boundless. Easton's Bible Dictionary says this, and it's very long and it's very wordy and it's very complicated, but I I hope that, (laughs) that I do it justice. The decrees of God are His eternal, unchangeable, holy, wise, and sovereign purpose. Comprehending at once all things that ever were or will be in their causes, conditions, successions, and relations and determining their certain futurition. The decree being the act of an infinite, absolute, eternal, unchangeable, and sovereign person, comprehending a plan, including all his works of all kinds, great and small, from the beginning of creation to an unending eternity, ends as well as means, causes as well as effects, conditions and instrumentalities, as well as the events which depend upon him, must be incomprehensible by the finite intellect of man. But the decrees are eternal, unchangeable, and comprehend all things that come to pass. That's your king, people. That is the king that you take your hat off to pray to. That's the king who knows all, sees all, Manages it all and sees you. Acts 15 18 says, Known to God from eternity are all his works. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him, in him, in this God, and in him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Everything is not everything in your life. Everything is everything. How does that sit? How does that sit with you? To know that God is responsible for everything, not figuratively, not the stuff that you can see or the stuff that you're understanding or the stuff that you're going through, but everything is everything. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will that's the king that's my king that's the king that we claim to serve michael youssef says while many try to ignore jesus when he returns in power and might this will be impossible while many claim or try to ignore jesus when he returns in power and might this will be impossible My fear is that many of us in the church try to ignore Jesus as well. Not for everything. Not for the good stuff. Not for the blessings. Another thing the king does is the king demands. He decrees and he demands. To demand means to claim something as a right and is essentially an urgent requirement it's an urgent requirement. One example of this is the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 3 to 5. We're just going to look at a couple of them because we can, you can read all of them there. But it says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So I, I I looked up trying to see how this translated word for word from the Hebrew and the fact is it doesn't. Because the Hebrew language doesn't work the way our language works. The negative is before and then the you have is after and you make as after, and you bow as after. So it says no bowing, no making, no other gods. The Hebrew word is low, and they put it before that to say this statement that's coming up is negative. You cannot do this. You cannot. And looking at that, uh, that negative statement, it's not just I'd rather you not, I prefer you not. That, the term that they use is absolute prohibition. Absolute prohibition. So your version of scripture may say, do not. And the King James says, thou shalt not. NIV says, you shall not. Your parents would say, you will not. When you read the commandments, and God is giving an absolute prohibition, that's the image you need to have. You will not have other gods before me. You will not lie. You will not steal. I've both heard those prohibitions growing up, and I've passed them on to the next generation. And there's a difference between saying, don't do that, and you will not do that this is a demand from the king man from the king is you will not do this that's a demand so the ten commandments are one example but then another example is a great commission jesus came to them matthew 28 18 and 20 jesus came to them and said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me what authority all of it all authority from the king who governs everything All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, as a result of this about me, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I, the King of everything, am with you always to the very end of the age, not until the day you die. Not until the day you die but until the end of the age. The end of all. (laughs) So what is the Great Commission? What is the demand? The demand is go. The demand is go. I've heard this two different ways, and finally I found somebody who put clarification on it, because you've heard go is the command, and then you've heard as you're going, make disciples is the command. Bill Mounts, said, as a Greek scholar, he said, I've heard this several times, and I want to put clarification to it, that, and he went into his, how Greek grammar breaks down, which I'm not going to bore you with because I don't get it either, but he said, it's very clear that go is the command in this sentence. In other words, Jesus, the king of all, is sending you out for the purpose of making disciples. Going is a command. You don't get to not go. You don't get to not go and make disciples. Going is the command. Going is the imperative. The God of the universe, the God of all things, the one who holds the universe in the head, in the hand, and doesn't get burned by an exploding star gave all authority to Jesus, which Jesus passed off onto us, and he said, go. Go. Not as you're making your way through life, if the opportunity presents itself go. Henry Blackaby says, see I found a Blackaby quote for this, this is good. Heather and I, the first church I served at, the one where, where we met, the Blackabys were, uh, were one of the families there and um, had the privilege of meeting Dr. Blackaby and, um, and just a man of intense godly character and brilliant biblical mind and such a humble heart. Um, so anytime I get to say anything that he said, I remember who he is. And it's an amazing honor to, to even know him. Henry Blackaby says, he, Jesus, has a right to interrupt your life. He is Lord. When you accept him as Lord, you give, gave him the right to help himself to your life anytime he wants. He has a right to your life. When you say, Yes, I will follow you, I will receive your grace, I will receive um, forgiveness, then he has a right to everything in your life. He has a right to any, any time in your life. And he said, um, he ha- You gave him the right to help himself to your life anytime he wants. When I was in high school, um, there was a family, the Hanks family, and he was, uh, Scott became my best friend. We were in the same grade. Um, and I moved there as a sophomore and, uh, became involved in this church. And that's where I was discipled and actually came to know Christ there and was called to ministry there. And the Hanks had an open house kind of policy. It got to the point where me and the rest of the youth group would go into their house, just look in the door. And if the, if they were there, we just open the door and go on in. And you always came in through the garage And they had a pantry room. And when I say that, I mean, there's a refrigerator in this room and a shelf full of Little Debbie snacks and instant mashed potatoes and popcorn, whatever it was. And I don't know how many thousands of dollars they spent feeding me as a lazy bum when my parents were at work. But I spent more time there than I did at my my parents' house. And they gave us the right to help ourselves to anything that they had. They said, come on in and help yourself. The door is always open for you. When we receive the grace of Christ, we are saying, yes, Jesus, come on in, help yourself to anything I have, anything I am. It's all yours. So the king decrees, and the king demands, and finally the king declares. To declare means to make something emphatically known. Often in the face of contradiction. The strength of the declaration is based on the knowledge and the veracity of the one making the declaration. What that means is, when Jesus declares something, he is making it emphatically known. And the thing that makes his declaration reliable is his own knowledge, which, what does he know? Everything and the veracity or the truthfulness the trustworthiness of that person making the declaration and because jesus knows everything and because he is truth then his declarations are absolutely true absolutely true absolutely true true all the time so what kind of stuff does the king declare we're not going to like this the king declares that you're at fault Romans three ten twelve 12 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's a declaration from the king who knows everything. And who speaks absolute truth because he is truth. 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Remember what the definition of declaration of de- de- to declare means. Make something emphatically known. Jesus doesn't draw hints pence at our faults. He doesn't draw hints pence when there is something that we need to know about ourselves, when there is something that stands in the way of our relationship with him. Because the second part of this definition is often in the face of contradiction. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever argued with God about whether you're guilty or not, because I don't have to. And I'm not saying that because we're different. I'm saying that because we're not. The king declares that you're at fault. And it's important for us, it's imperative for us to become not necessarily comfortable with that, but at least to recognize the reality of it and the truth of it and to respond to the king that his declaration is true. That agreement is called confession. Confession means to say the same thing. When God says, this is wrong, we say, that's wrong. When God says, this is a sin, we say, that's a sin. When God says, you have to stop this, we say, I have to stop this. One of the podcasters I listen to is Michael Knowles. And uh, Michael is a, um, a very conservative Catholic. And he wasn't always, he grew up Catholic and then went to atheism and then came back to Catholicism. And, and he tells the story of when he went to, um, to his priest and as he was getting back into um, actually trying to be um, a, a good believer, a good Catholic, somebody who, um, who, uh, who really wants to do what his understanding of God is. Um, but part of that is confession to a priest and, and he had a a kind of a young priest. So he went to the priest and, um, and he would say, uh, forgive me father for I've sinned. It's been three weeks since my last confession or whatever. And the priest asked him, okay, about his sins. And he said, well, I just haven't been really great lately. And, you know, and the priest says, no, 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 no. Now, if you're going to grow, if you're going to change, if you're going to become who you're supposed to be, you have to be very specific with your sins. So tell me what you have actually done. This is not about Catholicism. This isn't about whether we confess our sins um, to priests or whatever, but we approach God often the same way. For some of us, the only time that we ask God for forgiveness is when we're praying in a group and we say, forgive us for our sins. And then we move on to blessing the food. But our relationship with the king has to be much more specific than that. Our confession to the king about our sins has to be very specific and immediate. When he reveals our sin to us as if it needs to be revealed. But when he tells us um, to confess, we are to confess specifically. That is what confession is. Is, yes, I did that. And yes, it's a sin. So the king declares that we're at fault. But the king also declares that you're forgiven. The king declares that you're forgiven. He makes an emphatically known statement, often in the face of contradiction. Have you ever argued with God about whether you really are forgiven or not? Have you ever argued with yourself about whether God really has or can forgive you? How do we move past that? By understanding what that declaration means, because the declaration, the strength of it, is based on his knowledge and the veracity of who he is. Yes, he tells us we're at fault. But he also tells us with absolute emphasis that you're forgiven. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He's just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians 6.9-11 says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who have sex with men or thieves or the greedy or drunkards or slanderers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Were. So who you used to be. But, and this is where it turns, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Do not let your emotions or your mood determine whether Jesus speaks truth to you or not. He will always speak truth to you because that's who he is. He knows everything. You can't hide it. You may believe that you're at fault, but do you also believe that you're forgiven? When he forgives, he forgives. He knows it. The question is, do you know it? Some of us are ensnared, not in sins that we still commit, but in sins that used to ensnare us. Now we're caught up in the memories and the guilt and the shame of the things that we no longer do. Because we've been forgiven, and those things have been taken away, and we've been set free. We were washed, sanctified, justified, made right. Wash means made clean, sanctified, was straightened up, and justified is made right. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all authority is, on heaven, on earth, has been given to him. So the king declares that you're a fault, and the king declares that you're forgiven, and the king declares that you're free. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it? that gives us peace what is it that sets us free is being justified through faith in christ that's where our peace with god comes through that's where it comes from john 8 36 says so if the sun sets you free you'll be free indeed some version says you'll be truly free another way to say it's absolutely free you are free if the sun sets you free you are free The king makes these declarations. And what kind of king is it? The king that knows all. And the king that is true. He is truth. That's the kind of king that makes these declarations. So when he says that we're at fault, we can rest in that and know that that's true and respond with a yes. When he says, you're forgiven, we can respond to that with a Yes. And when he says, you are free, we can respond to that with, yes! The declarations of a truthful, all-knowing, all-powerful God are that you're at fault, but you're forgiven, and you're free. We don't have to hold on to those things as if they're our own to bear. That's what the cross is for. Thomas Brooks says, Our sins are debts that none can pay but Christ. I love this. It is not our tears, but his blood. It is not our sighs, but his suffering that can testify for our sins. Christ must pay all, or we're prisoners forever. Have you ever had somebody tell you that your apology wasn't sincere because they didn't like the way you said it? Or because you didn't cry enough or your head didn't hang low enough. The power of forgiveness flows from Jesus' work, from his suffering, not yours, from his blood, not your tears. Some people are very emotional and they, they cry at everything and sometimes they apologize about it but some people are very stoic and they don't cry at anything, but they also don't get excited about anything. Congratulations, congratulations, you won the lottery. All right. All right, I got won the lottery. All right, nice. But fortunately, the work of Christ to forgive us and to set us free is based on his work and the truthfulness of his work and not the emotional response that we have for it. Confession just means that we agree with his declarations on our faults, our forgiveness, and our freedom. And he's a king. Yesterday was an inauguration. Here in Virginia, we had all the new offices for the state, um, the inaugurations, our new governor and attorney general. But Jason Hood says this, he says, the only inauguration that ultimately matters occurred 2,000 years ago, when the emperor of the cosmos showed up in the flesh to launch an empire without end. God demands that we go. He demands that we go. The movie Moneyball is about the Oakland A's uh, manager, Billy Veen, and his search for a pennant with an underfunded team and limited talent. After meeting a young data analyst, he became convinced to look at statistics and averages as a way to put together a championship team. In a meeting with his coaches and his recruiting staff, he became frustrated that they were trying the same old methods that didn't work and were ignoring the data that could be the key. One coach mentioned a player as being a good hitter but Billy saw that the numbers didn't support that and he asked the question, if he's a good hitter why isn't he hitting good? We tend to make excuses for the way we live and what we're willing to surrender to the King of Kings and this begs the Moneyball question. If you're a follower of Christ why aren't you following Christ? 1st Timothy 6, 11 to 16. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you, to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen.